We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, more about the resurrection. Again, this is the post-Easter season, and we don't want to forget what we just celebrated. That is the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without it, there is no core to Christianity. In fact, there is no such thing as Christianity. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thanks so much for listening into the show. As you know, over the course of the last couple days, I've chosen to focus on some very positive news rather than to get fixated on the contemporary negative stuff that's going on in our lives. I do too much of that. You do too much of that. And I want to try to correct that, at least for a handful of days here. I will get back to commentary on the daily news. I do think it's appropriate to engage in that. I'm not distancing myself from that. In fact, I think it's an obligation of Christians to, to engage in the market square of ideas, to lead in the thoughts that are going to uh, define our culture. If Christians disengage and don't do anything, then we are not, we're not obeying. We're not holding true to the call to be salt and light in a culture that desperately needs our influence. Without us, culture is going to be dark and it will rot. Okay, We need to be salt, preserve culture, keep it healthy and whole, and we need to be light in darkness. So I'm not disparaging political involvement. In fact, you know that I believe that it is an obligation of every conservative, every Christian to get involved. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. That's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'll repeat the last sentence again. Not to act is to act. So when we disengage from culture, when we don't debate, when we don't argue, when we don't lead, socially, culturally, and politically. I would argue that that's an unbiblical response for a conservative biblical Christian. I don't buy this argument that you Christians are too political. Stay out of politics. No, that's an oxymoron. That's a contradiction in terms. I used to be accused of that when I was a college president. Well, you're too political. And my response was, have you read your own church history? Abolitionists, for example, during antebellum slavery were Christians. It was Christians who led in the march for civil rights. It was Christians who led in the march to get rid of the slave trade. For example, William Wilberforce in Great Britain was the leader of the abolitionist movement. Without William Wilberforce, a biblical Christian, Arguably, the slave trade in Great Britain would have persisted for decades, if not more. Likewise, in the United States, it was Christians who led the march, the fight, to abolish slavery here in the United States. And then, a hundred years later, it was Christians who led 
in the March for Civil Rights, supporting Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, MLK referenced biblical orthodoxy, natural law, common sense, and morality as defined in Scripture. He referenced all of this in his letter from the Birmingham jail. He used a biblical worldview. He used the Bible. He used Christianity. He used orthodoxy. He used these things as the premise for justifying his civil disobedience. Okay? So I don't believe we should disengage from the political debate. That's not what I'm doing as I focus on the resurrection story. The truth, the historical veracity of Jesus' resurrection. Now, what I'm doing is I'm saying this is the most important political, historical fact of human history. And we need to understand why the early church grounded its engagement its public engagement in this particular core premise of Christianity. And that is, it's not a myth, it's not a legend, it's not just wishful thinking or spiritual allegory. No, Jesus actually rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. We have a risen Savior. That's a fact. And the Apostle Paul says, if this isn't true then we, Christians, among all people, are the most pitied. In other words, we're a shameful lot if we've bought this lie, if we've imbibed this Kool-Aid, this myth of a resurrection, when it was never intended to be taken seriously. If that's the case, then Paul himself tells the earliest Christians, I pity you, and I pity myself if we have actually bought the lie. It's not a lie, he said. I've seen the risen Christ myself, as have all of the surviving apostles. This is what he was saying at the time. All of the surviving apostles, all 11 of them, remember Judas committed suicide. Jesus appeared to 10 in his first meeting with the apostles. Thomas wasn't there. He came and appeared a second time. Thomas was there. We've heard the story of doubting Thomas in that particular narrative. And then Paul says that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, had a personal experience with him. This wasn't just a ghost. He actually met Christ on the road to Damascus. And then Paul tells us that in addition to all of these sightings, there were 500 people that actually saw Christ before his ascension. And he says, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. Many of them are still alive. This is the reality of the core of the Christian faith. I've shared some of this stuff, and I'm going to share more with you after the break. Today, I want to wrap up this swoon theory that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. He just fainted, and then he revived a couple days later, got up, walked around, and he led this world movement. I'm going to tell you again why that's just baloney. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody in their right mind, secular or sacred, Christian or atheist, would buy that one. In fact, thoughtful scholars have, have discounted that theory decades ago. I'll explain again to you why, and then we're going to get into the evidence that the tomb was actually empty. Was Jesus buried in a tomb? Is that a historical fact? And was the tomb empty? Is that a historical fact? You've probably heard these stories about how they think they found Jesus' bones. And like I said, the Quran tells you that there's a, there's a grave 
in uh, India, where Jesus fled after his uh, resuscitation. He fled to India and ultimately died there, and that's where Jesus is buried. That's what the Quran says. There's another theory that says that Jesus fled to Egypt and married a priestess of Isis. <laughs> the, the fact that people will actually buy that nonsense as opposed to attending to the historical depth of the actual gospel narratives it boggles the mind. But we'll deal with some of that in today's show. Let's take a break. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. Again, the topic today is the resurrection of Christ. Why is it important? Well, this is a quote that I've shared with you in a previous episode. It's from John MacArthur, a pastor out on the West Coast, Dr. John MacArthur. He says this, The truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of the gospel. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. Pretty clear, right? That's why the resurrection matters. Right? Here's another quote that I've shared with you. Whoever reads the New Testament seriously must acknowledge that one outstanding historic event alone spurred the small band of 11 ordinary men to an amazing task of evangelization in their generation. Defying every obstacle, loss of home, persecution, even death itself, they evidence the supreme relevance in their ministry of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Close quote. That's Erling C. Olson who said that. And then the segue to the book that I'm going to use for the rest of the show is a quote from Lee Strobel, a, a, a scholar who used to be an atheist, and he wrote for the Chicago Tribune. He was an investigative reporter, so he, understa- he understood very well, and he understands presently, because Lee Strobel is a young man, he's still alive, and he's still teaching and speaking and writing. He wrote the book, The Case for Christ. I believe that was his first book post-conversion. Lee Strobel says this, We become Christian because the evidence was so compelling, so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. And that means Following him is the most rational and logical step we could possibly take. Lee Strobel. So here, here are just a, a, a couple more quotes. Well, not additional quotes. I've shared them with you in previous shows, but I'm repeating them so that you understand why the resurrection is so important. Without it, you have no Christianity. Okay, It's the pivot upon which all of Christianity turns. That's what John MacArthur is telling us. The Gospels pivot on the story of the resurrection. All of the epistles, whether they're written by Jude or Peter, James or Paul, all of the epistles are grounded in the resurrection. Without it, they wouldn't have wrote those letters. They're defending the orthodoxy of the Christian faith in those letters to the early church. And one epistle in particular, one letter, Epistle is the word for letter. One letter that the Apostle Paul wrote very early, very very early in the church's development was to the church in Corinth. Now, the church in Corinth was, quite frankly, a fallen church. They had a lot of problems. 
uh, frankly, the, the Corinthian church looked a lot like today's church, today's evangelical church that's so confused, so confused and losing its way. And you can look at the letter to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and frankly, 2 Corinthians, as letters, two letters where Paul is telling followers of Christ, get your act together. I've, I've taught you clearly what the gospel is. I've given you biblical truths. I've shared with you my testimony in walking and talking with the risen Christ. I've shared with you the earliest, earliest creeds of the church, the, the teachings that were handed down to me by the, by the apostles that uh, actually walked with Jesus in his three years of ministry. Peter and James in particular, I've met with them in Jerusalem, and they have shared with me. They've taught me after my conversion because I was a persecutor of the Christians. My name was Saul of Tarsus. I was killing you people. And then I met with Christ. He confronted me on the road to Damascus. And as the result of that, I later went to Jerusalem to learn. And I sat at the knee of Peter and James. And here's the stuff they told me. That's the nature of this letter to the Corinthians, both letters to the Corinthians, the first one and the second one. So I'm going to read again to you what Paul says to the Corinthians, and then I'm going to pick apart two theories, two theories. One is that Jesus didn't really die. He swooned. He fainted because of the attempted crucifixion, but he really didn't die. They took him off the cross, they put him in a cold tomb, and he resuscitated himself. Got up, walked out of the tomb, engaged with his disciples, inspired them for several days, and then ascended into heaven. Okay? But he never died. Or he didn't ascend into heaven. He just lived out a normal life because he escaped to India or he escaped to Egypt. That's, that's the swoon theory that Jesus never died. He faked his death, and the apostles faked his death. All right, that's the swoon theory. I'll repeat that, uh, or I'll go over that again very, very quickly. We'll tie a bow around that one, and then there's the question. Okay, did Jesus actually get buried in a tomb, or did he die on the cross, and did he get thrown into a mass grave like he should have been? Because that's what Romans did to crucified people. They didn't give them the dignity and honor of burying them. They just let the crows, the vultures, the buzzards pick at the bones while the body hung on the cross for days. And then after they were done with that spectacle, the Romans took the what was remaining of the corpse off the cross and just threw it in a ditch. So why do we have this peculiar story about Jesus being taken down and given the dignity of an expensive burial in a very expensive grave? Surely that's not true, right? That's what the skeptics will say. Surely that's not true. And even if it was true, if they put him in a grave, do we have any proof that the grave is empty? Does history confirm an empty grave? Those are two questions I'm going to deal with now. Okay, so first, let's go back and look at what Paul said to the church in Corinth in terms of the initial creed and why it's important. Here's what the creed says, and this is, uh, this is uh, recorded in the first epistle, first epistle, the first letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. It's actually in chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. 
Paul says this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Close quote. So what did Paul just say to that early church, those first followers, those people that he was trying to instruct and correct because they were starting to get things wrong already? They were starting to ignore the teachings of the apostles. And Paul said, no, no, if you want to claim to be Christians, followers of Christ, you've got to hold to the teachings of the church and the teachings of Christ. And he said, I received this stuff from the apostles. I received it from James and Peter. He's saying that directly. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is critical. This is the primary stuff he's saying. That Christ, what? Died for our sins. So he's not He's not buying this argument that Christ swooned, that Christ faked his death, or that the apostles did this. Let's just tie a bow around that one, first and foremost, right now. All right. The medical evidence, the medical evidence of what takes place during a crucifixion and the flogging that precedes this makes the whole idea that anybody would be taken down off of that cross and resuscitate themselves and get up and start walking around a couple days later, it's just asinine. It's a stupid claim. The flogging itself kills most people. As I said yesterday, the flogging includes being whipped over and over again, dozens of times with a whip that has metal balls braided into the thongs of the whip and pieces of sharp bone. They drag it across your back. And we have historians that tell us that In many cases, that torture was so severe that the flesh was torn down to the bones and you could actually see the person's spine. That's how brutal the flogging was. In some cases, the bowels of the person were actually exposed. So Jesus was flogged aggressively and cruelly. They mocked him. They beat him to the point of death. The fact that he was exhausted and nearly fainted as they forced him to carry the cross to Calvary indicates that he was already on the verge of death because of the flogging. He didn't have enough energy to proceed. Then when they put him on the cross, they used five to seven inch long spikes to drive through his wrists. Oh, some will say, well, there you go. The Bible says the palms of his hands. No, the Bible doesn't say that. It says his hands, not his palm. And a wrist was considered part of the hand historically. So there's no discrepancy there. The historical fact is that the Romans drove the spikes through the wrist because to drive them through the palm would have just torn away. They wouldn't, it, the, the weight of the body would have been too much. It just would have torn through the hand. So they had to drive it through the wrist the bone structure there, so that the weight of the body could be supported. And in doing so, they would sever the median nerve. It would be excruciating. In fact, you know where the word excruciating comes from. It's a word that they make up, excruciating, crucifix. They're referring to the pain suffered when you're being crucified. That is a word that has its etymology in the crucifixion. 
Okay, so even the words that we use on a daily basis basis go back to this biblical fact, this historical fact of a crucifixion. Okay, I'm going to run out of time here. So I want to move on from the swoon theory. There's no way that you could suffer the flogging and then be crucified with spikes driven through your wrist and in your feet and then a spear thrust into your heart. And then you're going to survive all that. You're going to be taken down off the cross. You're going to be put in a grave. You're going to resuscitate yourself a few days later. And then you're going to get up and walk around and surprise everybody. Say, surprise, you know, follow me. Is that crazy or what? The swoon theory has no scholarly veracity whatsoever. So just recognize that. So was the tomb, was there a tomb in the first place? Why didn't they just throw Jesus in a mass grave? Well, there's all the evidence in the world that when Mark records this, which many would argue is the earliest gospel, the gospel of Mark, when Mark records this fact, that there is no dispute of it. Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, which he was one of the wealthy priests of the Sanhedrin. Now, apparently he was a believer, and apparently he actually skipped the trial of Jesus. Uh, Who knows why? Probably because he didn't want to be part of this this, uh, circus, this, this ruse. He skipped the trial of Jesus. All of his peers convicted Jesus to death. Joseph Joseph was obviously distressed over the whole thing. He offers to take Jesus and to give him the grave that he had purchased for his own future burial. He, He had this grave carved out of stone for himself because he could afford it. So this wealthy Jewish priest is the one who gives his own grave over to this crucified criminal. Now, You really think that this is made up. What historical check do we have to confirm this? Well, number one, Mark is the earliest gospel. Most scholars will agree that Mark was written just a handful of years after the actual events, and that it was written at a time when many of the other apostles were still alive to refute it if it was false. And the passion narrative, the narrative that we're referring to right now in Mark, where he describes the, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, has a, has a structure that is clear, and that structure indicates that Mark is using a different source. In other words, it would be, in today's vernacular, it would be, he, he's, he's putting quotation marks around it, and he's saying, this is what I've been told. Let me tell you the passion narrative. He's referring to an earlier source than himself, So Mark is the earliest gospel, and the passion narrative was handed down to Mark by somebody earlier than him. And it's clear in the structure of how it's written that that's the case. So we've got something that was actually actually documented very, very, very soon after the events themselves. So that's one of the things we need to understand about the empty, excuse me, the existence of the tomb in the first place is that the passion narrative was given to Mark by an earlier source. And Mark is a very early source himself. So you can basically conclude that this is firsthand testimony, that there was a grave. It was an expensive one. It was given to Jesus and the apostles to bury Jesus there. It was given by Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy priest. 
Now, the Jews themselves attest to it by virtue of their argument, because when the body of Jesus isn't there, okay, on resurrection morning, when the tomb is empty, do the do the Jews say, well, there was no tomb in the first place. He's in that mass grave. No, they don't say that. They start arguing that the tomb is empty. Why? Well, because the soldiers fell asleep. The guards fell asleep. Now, why would the Jews say that? If there was no tomb, they would, would have said, what are you talking about? There is no tomb. And if the tomb still had the body in it, they, would, they wouldn't say, well, the, 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 the soldiers, the guards fell asleep. That's why there's no body there. They would say, well, go look in the tomb. There is a body there. So the Jews themselves are the ones that actually verify the historical accuracy of the story in the first place. Number one, there was a tomb. Jesus was buried in it. He wasn't thrown into a mass grave. Otherwise, the Jews would have pointed that out. Number two, there's a body that's missing from the tomb because they're trying to find excuses for it being missing, and this excuse is that the guards fell asleep or that they were paid off to turn their back and pretend that they fell asleep. This is the kind of stuff that's going on in terms of excuses for the missing body. So number one, did Jesus die on the cross? Absolutely. You don't suffer all of this torture and get taken off of a cross, put in a grave, and then resuscitate yourself and walk around a couple days later and inspire everybody to follow you. That's a crazy claim. Number two, was there a tomb, or was Jesus just thrown into a mass grave after he died on the cross? Well, the Jews themselves attest to the fact that there was a tomb because they're arguing that the reason that it's empty is because the guards fell asleep and perhaps were even paid off to turn their back and pretend they fell asleep. So, yes, Jesus did die. Okay, the, what, what do we have in terms of the creed? Let's go back and read the creed again. I'll read it to you one more time as we close out this show. This is from the Apostle Paul again in the letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I received this stuff from who? James and Peter themselves. Okay, back to the creed. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Close quote. And the creed then goes on to list several appearances of the resurrected Christ. It's pretty clear stuff. Number one, Christ did die according to the scriptures. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Paul's saying that this is scriptural. He's telling you he got the information from Peter and James. This is a very early, early, it's the earliest. It is a creed that is codified days after the event. And that's what Paul is citing, and he's sharing it as the core, as the key, as the premise of all Christianity, as John MacArthur said, as the pivot upon which all else revolves. Without that, there is no such thing as Christianity. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.